University of the Arts on Broad Street. It's a very special Promoter 101, featuring an interview with Live Nation's Jeff Gordon. Baby, you in the best city on earth. Home of the cheese steak, Rocky Balboa, Liberty, and the world champions. Stani, I hope you're ready because the fine brothers and sisters of Philadelphia are ready for you. Promoter 101, and I'm in room 24 something, and I've got an inside leg measurement of 32 inches and a cup size of 31A. Good evening, Philadelphia, and welcome to Promoter 101, live from the University of the Arts. We're in the middle of a crazy polar vortex, something outside, Dan, but despite the 15-degree temperatures, we're joined by a very lovely and warm crowd here in Philadelphia. Promoter 101, live from the Kaplan Recital Hall at the University of the Arts. I'm Luke Pierce. My partner in crime sitting next to me tonight, Mr. Dan Steinberg from Emporium Presents. How are you doing, Dan? Hello, Philly. You guys are looking good. Thank you so much for coming out and braving the cold. Yeah. We are going to have a good time tonight. Later on this podcast, we're going to have a, a lot of great stories shared, a lot of great lessons hopefully to be learned. A bunch of good war stories around the corner tonight. We're going to be joined later with a live war story from Feta Bookings, Eva Alexi Rio, later on this podcast. Also, we're going to have Point Entertainment's Jesse Lundy stepping up to give us a State of the Union on what's going on here in the live market in Philadelphia. And in our feature interview, the president of Live Nation Philadelphia, Mr. Jeff Gordon, is here as well. So we've got that coming up. So this is going to be a up good for Jeff time. Gordon, you know? Let's just get right into it. Hi, it's Kim Badir with City of Tacoma Venues and Events, appearing on Promoter 101. Glad to represent all Canadians everywhere, particularly those who have landed in the U.S. of A. If you've missed any of the past Promoter 101 episodes, you can find them all online at Promoter101.com. This week, we have a great reissue. It's episode 76. Can you tell them about that very special episode, Luke? You know, we've had a lot of great interviews on this podcast, and episode 76 was no different. We had Red Light's Mary Hillard Harrington, that's a manager out of Nashville. She talked about her early days working for Donald Trump, explains why she left the publicity side of the biz and her current gig, managing Dirk Bentley. Also, uh, WME UK's Alex Bully is going to talk to us about the digital market. And I have no idea why we had this guy in the podcast, but he was a great interview from Survivor reality star Johnny Fairplay joined us, dropping in with some pretty good war he's stories. He's a self-marketing genius, and this is the music business we have to know how to market. The guy got himself on a CBS show, and everyone knows his name 
and he didn't go up into security like the rest of those idiots that are on those reality That's shows. That's true. It was, a, it was actually a really great interview. We also had your business partner and from Live Nation Dubai, Zed McBool sat down from London too. Great yeah, They were talking about Jason's first bar mitzvah. He's not Jewish and he didn't know how that happened and he walked into his own bar mitzvah at Sammy's Romania in New York. So that was a fun story. It is a fun story. They had invitations made for that in advance of that, by the way, too. So that was a great surprise for Jason. So if you get a chance, subscribe to the podcast, send us a review, email us, let us know what you're thinking. As long as we're properly guilt tripping you, we really, really, really need your reviews. You're really painting on the Jewish guilt tonight, which I, I really trying. appreciate. This is Jason Flom, chairman and CEO and founder of Lava Records on Promoter 101. Why don't we uh, start the podcast here with a live war story here. This is a part of the podcast where we invite somebody from the industry to come up and tell one of those harrowed stories about breaking it here in the biz. So tonight we're going to ask Feta Bookings, Eva Alexi Rio to join us down here. Come on down. Welcome. Thanks for coming Hi. down. Thanks for having me. Uh, so many people don't know this, but there's a bunch of industry that's right here, not just the concert stuff. But Tim Bohr is here. Eva's here. There's some managers here. This is a real industry town. That's true. So yeah. representing the booking agent side of things. Yeah. It's a great Give us a war story. Yeah. So I think it was hard to pick which one to go with, to be honest. Because you can go working, with a couple. Yeah. Well, I don't know. If I can... <laughs> I don't think I have time for a couple. They're very you had long. a border jumping story, right? Where I do. I have, a, I have a great crossing illegally through borders story. We have a, a client in the UK who was advised to not come over without the visas being delivered, which were properly approved, but delayed, which happens with visas because we're obviously dealing with government offices. But in, is, this, is this recent, by the way? This is recent enough. Yeah. yeah. And it, it has a trickle effect as well. So the artists listen to you and that's the end of the story? Yes, of course, because yeah. all artists listen to everyone who works for them. <laughs> so in the UK, you can hold two passports. And even they felt that, you know, they would leave the one behind and his twin brother would show up and pick it up. <laughs> See where I'm going with this one? And instead of flying with the rest of the band, he decided to fly solo so he can actually not get flagged at immigration and customs as a band. Because when you're coming through as a band, they do research to make sure that you have the paperwork. So he comes in, he gets on the bus, he starts a tour. It works in the United States. The tour is going to Canada. I said, don't go into Canada because immigration coming back in will be impossible. Of course, like all bands do, they did not listen to me and they went into Canada. And during the coming back to the United States, he got stopped and sent back to Canada by the U.S. border crossing, which I think is why the whole build a wall is so funny. I'm like, do you know how hard it is to get into this country? From Canada? Um, yeah. From, yeah. So, and he was coming out, he gets stopped, he gets sent back to Canada, and he has to sit there while the tour, this is on Warp Tour, just to paint the whole, so you know what kind of tour this is on. <laughs> so during Warp Tour, Kevin Lyman, who is a saint, says, well, now we'll keep him on the tour, just get him back into the country because they're paid to be on the whole tour, and I'm still paying an artist to perform that's not performing. So Promoters and producers do not like that. No. And, and then they had alternating... Other singers sing for him while he was not on the tour. So you're getting creative. Yeah, which I don't think, I think Kevin didn't appreciate. Thinking how <laughs> he was just like, Did he let you know that? He's like, yeah, yeah. Every single day. He's good day, about expressing his thoughts. Every single day I got an email. And because Kevin for 23 years has called me Eva Ava because he's still not sure which one it is. <laughs> 
um, the email would say, Eva, Eva, where is my singer? And of course, I'm like, I'm going to get white hair because of this. What happened was we had to send him back to London. We had to reprocess everything. And he got stamped that he is a flag from coming back to the United States. Permanently. So properly Permanent. fucked. Permanently. Right. Yeah. So then we had away. to get the lawyer to come in and say, but he, this is, he didn't really do, he mistakenly misunderstood the work visas. So he was lying. Anyways, we got him. We, we got him. Yeah. Very nice guy. He, he was lying. <laughs> I mean, who would have thought that? We get him back in two weeks later. And now every time they come in, we have to go through a completely different border crossing process altogether. And it's really a lot of fun and very expensive. Very, very expensive. So the key is to always listen to your agent. Always. Everybody give it up for Eva for a live war story. Thank you so much. everyone. Hey, it's J-Bo Lewis from UTA, and you're on Promoter 101. Tweets of the week. Let's get into the tweets, my friend. Yes, this whole podcast and the name of Promoter 101 started from a series of tweets that Dan started making about two years ago, kind of just flaming some certain people in the business with hashtag Promoter 101 in it. So we take a moment on every podcast to read some of the tweets of the week. These are the best ramblings and musings out of Dan's brain in the form of a tweet, which is the second best type of tweet you can find online next to the president these days. So let's go with this. You can ever have your tweets thrown back at you five years later every single week. And then aired for the internet they, to uh, they explore never, what they, you were thinking back then while you were sitting on the pot writing a tweet. Some of these don't. I, I definitely recommend it. Some of these don't age well, but this one was okay. Start here. When a local public official demands to meet an artist playing in their market. It is amazing how nobody gives a fuck who the mayor of Fargo is and they don't want to meet them regardless of I how good our red cap was. I can't believe that's the case. How about when a venue tells you their capacity has been reduced after you confirm the date? It's awesome because the agents don't much mind when we change the deal after the show is already confirmed and on sale. That never a problem. Never a problem. Never a problem. How about this one? That time you got a revised ad mat a day after the entire tour's breaking ads went up. Yeah, that just happened once. There's nothing better than breaking a show and then finding out the next day after you've spent two-thirds of your ad budget to break the show that you didn't have the right assets provided. That's a lovely feeling. That never happens. That was like a one-time thing. Why do you keep looking at me? I feel like we've only done this... (laughs) I've only We're changing the passwords or, again. Only once or twice on an on an on sale. I know you, we've told all like thirty seven venues on this leg what the passwords are, but we're changing them all. You know, if the artist decides that they don't want to go from password bacon to password moose at the end of the day, you've got to make that accommodation for everybody. No, it's better that they're fries because it matters. Uh, it does really matter. If you uh, want to keep up with Dan on Twitter, he is at the Jew on Twitter, and I'm dead serious about that. I was an early adopter. <laughs> This is Mary Claire Borgeli from Live Nation, Promoter 101, best podcast in the music industry. Let's get down to it here. So uh, we're in Philadelphia, which has quickly become one of the hottest markets in America for touring in general, for the traffic that's in the market. To have a little state of the union about this marketplace here, I'd like to bring up from Point Entertainment, Mr. Jesse Lunny. Give it up for Jesse. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. I met Jesse 27 years ago at a Polestar 1998 assist- assistance dinner. And yeah. some of the guys from that table have gone down to some amazing things. Matt yep. Thomas, who manages some of the biggest acts in hip hop. 
Greg Siegel, who booked some of the biggest venues in LA, and then me and Jesse, who let down everyone else at the table. I, I have pictures. I actually have uh, photos from that night, too, that I can't, they're the only roll of film I can't find. It was pre digital cameras, kids. That. You used to have to, to develop it. Well, it couldn't have been too dangerous. We couldn't afford anything good yet. No, it was a disposable camera, for sure. <laughs> so tell us about the state of the local market, Jesse. Yes. Well, first, I just want to address what Luke said, you know, and again, being here, I've never thought of Philadelphia as anything except the fifth or sixth largest market in the country. Referencing back to when I did did three questions with you guys. I still think Philadelphia has got to be one of the top most competitive markets in the city. I mean, I know as much time as I spend fighting clubs over bands that are going to bring 50 people in on a door deal that I can't even imagine what goes on on Jeff's level. So that said, I always like to say that every two years, there's a musical chairs among the seven or eight people in this town that, that really do the, the big level business and stuff like that. And you never know who's your best friend and who's going to leave and go somewhere else and take all your acts for them the next day. But it's exciting in Philadelphia, you know, giving credit to Live Nation, hearing so much about how great the Met is and certainly how great the Fillmore is. Those are the two shiny new rooms here in town. And the Met 3,500 cap. 3,500 cap, I believe. Yeah, yeah. With a stage big enough to do a professional basketball ball game on, which is, I could use that in a couple of rooms, that's for sure. But anyway, yeah, pretty excited about that. The Fillmore, of course, built in the last two years, kind of at the same level as the AEG controlled Franklin Music Hall. Now that's, that was the Electric Factory historic factory. Right? Yep, absolutely. The Franklin Music Hall. So Larry Maggot got a check in, but they can't call it that anymore. Yeah. I think that uh, when he sold the business, he sold the name. Yeah. It's, my it's understanding. a little fucked up. I mean, that's some history right there. We have t-shirts to remember it by. You know, <laughs> I'm not bad mouthing anybody. No, it's pretty good. That's what I got. Yeah, some posters too. Yeah, was well, not expecting that, Jesse. Yeah. Thank you. But it is—it's exciting to see that much new stuff happening in this town. I mean, on that level, of course, all of those rooms are going to be indirect. Not indirect, but they're going to be indirectly competing with some of the established rooms, the Academy of Music, the Merriam, the Kimmel Center. You know, those are the high level, the big level capacity rooms. It goes beyond that and competition goes both ways. It's not just at the, you know, 3,500 cap and up. You're finding tooth and nail at the 600 and 1,200 cap rooms absolutely. in the market too. Right? Oh, absolutely. It's I mean, an amazingly solid AAA market too, right? One of the biggest stations in the country. Yeah, WXPN. Right we're very lucky to have XPN here. And, you know, again, you have, uh, well, we work very closely with the Ardmore Music Hall, which is a variable capacity up to 600, which is doing tremendously well. Um, Thank you. Yep. Um, and, you know, Underground Arts, which is now a, a Bowery controlled room. Um, you also have Union Transfer at a nice, sweet, variable capacity of like 600 to 1200. So Bowery was in the market before AEG rolled them up, right? Yeah. Bowery. So now was, they're together. Does that make them a lot more powerful here or has it changed anything? Well, I think that being able to add Union Transfer into the AEG controlled segment of rooms definitely is it bridges a really nice gap it's a desirable room it's a nice space and people want to go there it, it almost feels to me like people will go there to see shows just because it's there which i not, won't necessarily say about every room in the city yeah. you know the competition's not just center city you've got sprawl from phoenixville to burbs and doylestown yeah. and bucks county this is like it's you know north south east west every part in every direction right this is right the, well my business partner rich Carden and i have always sort of subscribed to the you know philadelphia proper has enough people beating each other up 
to maybe just sort of get out of the mix there. You work with everybody, right? Pretty much. Yeah. I, no, actually, no, we don't work with everybody. There's definitely people in town that, that it just doesn't really work out. And that's okay. It's nothing personal. It's a business, right? We can send you to counseling. I'm not naming names. What do you mean? You guys are my best friends. What are you talking about? Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. You'll sit in your chair. This guy might be my best friend one day. The next day, he might go to another company and scoop off the whole top line, all the acts that I developed up to where they got to 2,500 Which is funny for people in the room, but yeah. the internet can't see who you just pointed to. So that's yeah. awesome. That's, that's the way I like it. That's, that's John the way Hampton I like and Jeff Gordon. Yeah. yeah. It's nothing personal. This is a, it's, they don't call it the music friend business, right? Well, I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's not what they call the it. That's, that's before Quite you ask for in tickets, right? That's Say, when you ask yeah. to get, yeah. But anyway, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, Rich and I, you know, have been working at the Colonial Theater in Phoenixville for a long time at about a 650 cap. But just below us in Sellersville, the Sellersville Theater is 320, which is half of our size. It's a completely and utterly different market than anywhere around here. But, you know, they've got their radius clause and they may as well be in Center City as far as that goes, you know. But even moving up from that, the Keswick Theater's exactly double the size of the Colonial. So there's a nice system in the suburbs on that theater level. Not a ton of rock clubs out there. I mean, I don't really Keswick consider drive, Ardmore uh, to be the suburbs. It takes 15 minutes to get is there. Is the Keswick a Philly play? Because yeah. I've been out there for a show. I drove out there with Hampton when we did the Trailer Park Boys. And man, if you had a couple of beers, you couldn't make that drive back. Safe. You could take the train. You could take the train. <laughs> it's a tough one. Does a train stay up that late after your show gets over? I think the Keswick has done a fantastic job of positioning wow, themselves the in the market be for being who they are. And they've been there for, you know, a long time. Right. But it's sure. not really a Philly play, right? It's like a suburb. It's, like, well, out there you know what? Are. It depends. And again, demographics change in the city all the time, right. too. Ten years ago, I was like, why do you want your parents to have to get in the car and drive downtown to see a show that could just as easily happen a block and a half from where they live in the suburbs? But now a lot of our our parents' age people are moving into town because yeah. it is walkable. My parents and call for comps. They're not buying tickets. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Demographically, the city's changed a lot in the last few years. It's totally different. It's totally different. Every two years, Philadelphia has to be reevaluated as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Okay, so two years, we'll come back. You'll do this again for us. I'm going to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure I'll be booking the spectrum by then. I'm awesome. really excited. I'm looking forward to that. Everybody I got up for Jesse Lundy with the State of the Nation. Thank you. Hello, this is Dan Berkowitz from CID Entertainment and CID Presents, and I am here on Promoter 101. Seems like enough appetizers. Should we get on with the main course? I, I think so. I think this is the time that everybody's been waiting for here. The feature interview of the podcast, regional president for Philadelphia for Live Nation. Please welcome Mr. Jeff Gordon. What's up, fellas? Have a seat. Welcome. I, I love that you uh, I, I, were about to delegate this to John I really Hampton. enjoyed all of that, actually, <laughs> very much so. There's a lot to take away from that. That's really cool. And I'm excited about what's going on in Philadelphia. These, these are all my friends, to be honest with you. That's why I look at it. Jesse's my friend. And competition, my competition is to make sure people buy tickets. You know, that's my competition. My competition is Netflix. That's my competition. Get out of the house. My competition is Hulu. That's my competition. Fortnite, that's my competition. <laughs> that's my competition. I, that's what I think about. I don't really, I get it. We compete as concert promoters, but I, can, I compete for eyeballs. It's really what I do. So that's my competition. And that sounds a little bit, I don't know what it sounds like, but that's how I feel. Well, speaking of competition, Seth Hurwitz in DC, who owns the 930 Club, says you are the toughest competitor he has ever faced. 
That's high praise. It is high praise from Seth who will call in. Uh, and act at their house and, and not understand an unconfirmed show. So, yes, <laughs> I give it up to Seth. Seth is the hardest competitor I've ever fought against. And uh, when I went to D.C., I made sure I made friends with, oh, I was always friends with Grohl. Uh, and we booked the Black Cat and it was great. And yeah, D.C. is a very interesting market. But I always, I always thought that, yes, we would be like, I would be um, an aggressive promoter there. And I appreciate it from Seth because... When Seth says that I'm a good competitor, that means a lot because he's pretty ruthless, isn't he? <laughs> Truly <laughs> is. Understatement. And in, a very, in a very complimentary way. So I don't, I mean that very complimentary. So maybe we, we, we go back to DC. Maybe we go to the start. You know, you've had a, a great run, a long career. Let's take us back. Wait, I'm not you, dead yet. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> is this my but, eulogy? It's been a great run. It's a long career. And it's, here's your gold watch. Is Rapino here? He's going to hand me like a, like walking papers? Like, like, <laughs> still, still employed, right? Okay. Still employed. Okay. Yes. Okay, good. But let's take us back. Take us back to the start. How how did you get your foot in this business, and what was your first gig in music? Uh, well, originally um, I was on uh, South Florida working for Jack Boyle Cellar Door, and I took a part time job for three dollars and twenty cents an hour, which seems like extremely low. But I really wanted to be in the music business. I was a, a terrible bass player and an average drummer, and I realized I could not make it on the stage. But I'd go to shows. I'm like, I come I come from the the audience, actually, that's 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 where I, my experience as as a fan. I come from a fan, and I saw this guy walking around with a briefcase and a couple of passes, and I was like, "All right, it can't be them on stage, but who's that guy?" And I realized he was a promoter, and I was like, "Okay, how do I do that?" I did everything I could to become that guy. So I would take every job, whether it be a runner, which is a production assistant, which means you like. I need batteries. I need this. I need food from Budokai. You know, you do whatever you got to do. Um, you just I, knew you weren't a talented enough musician to make it in the industry? It obviously not. Yes, obviously not. Was that, I, but is that, it sounded like you knew that earlier. I was a big Motorhead fan, so I could play a bunch of Motorhead, like, but, you know, pretty <laughs> academic at that point. And I'm a big punk rock guy, so I could play a lot of those songs, but I wasn't that good. And obviously, you can tell by my looks, I'm going to have a face for radio. But the, <laughs> the, the point is, is that I realized at one point that I wanted to be in the business because it was so passionate for me. I love music so much that how could I be that guy that I saw walking around kind of like pointing at things with a bunch of passes? And that's what I wanted to do. It's very cool. So there was uh, early on you got involved with booking and there's a comedy club gig. Yes, I, I worked at the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale, which uh, Richie Tinkin managed, Eddie Murphy, and a couple other comedic acts. So that's where I started help booking with them. And I also helped book the uh, city limits in Fort Lauderdale. They would get in a bail sheet from the cellar door, and all of a sudden there'd be Social Distortion, the Ramones, and all these acts. This, this is the end of the era of the hair metal. So we're talking like 89? Yes, well, 87, 88. And uh, not that I don't love hair metal, so let's make sure you understand that. I love Rat and Tesla. Like, and, like, yeah, you never know when Dangerous Toys is going to go back out. I love Dangerous to Toys in Cinderella. So, but, so I understood like, the acts that were coming up or were like the Ramones or punk rock. I'm a punk rock guy um, that, that I really dug. And then all of a sudden these acts came up like Soundgarden or Ted or, you know, or Mud Honey or Pearl Jam that they were my age or Allison Chains. I understood their influences because I'm a huge Black Sabbath fan, I'm a Zeppelin fan. I understand that, you know, 
nasty, dirty rock and roll stuff. And then all of a sudden I could relate and book them. All of a sudden they're selling out, even though they had no airplay. And I also understood that I'd call my friends who were in college and say, hey, listen, you got to check out Widespread Panic or Blues Traveler or the samples. So these are a bunch of acts that I booked and they'd sell out in Florida. And they never used to make the turn and go all the way down to Florida, but we did because we'd actually make offers in, in three different markets in Florida. So that, that's really where I got my bones. And then I started to book, you know, like Don Muller, who's a huge, huge supporter of mine. I'd booked Nirvana on the Bleach Tour at the Masquerade in Atlanta and New Orleans, like, you know, and uh, John Harrington, I did 311, uh, Corn Capsha. I, I, I did uh, Dave in New Orleans. So, like, they really supported me because I kind of got it. And David Zedek actually, as I progressed a little bit forward for this conversation, I understood actually the boy bands with NSYNC and stuff like that because I understood the passion of it. How so, early were you doing Dave Matthews with Corin? How small clubs was he playing or what? Under the table, and, under the table and dreaming is basically what it was, you know, and I, and, and, uh, Corin was always one of my good friends and mentors. So I'd, go down, I'd, I'd go down to tracks cause I booked the Bayou. I'd go down to tracks and, and, and see Dave play down there and Hootie and everybody else. So I kind of got that vibe. So it was like early on when those those acts hadn't broken yet. Yes, that's true. And they used to play all a lot of the frat houses on the weekends and played the Bayou and, and Tracks and Cat's Cradle and the Flood Zone and all those places down there during the week as a, as like a ritual of every you know every week. And then they play all the frat parties. So I I, I dug it. So so you turfed that little bit of Florida, a little bit of the southeast between Atlanta and New Orleans, and you, you build a name for yourself out there. But you ended up headed off to D.C. You know, Black Cat, DC Capital Ballroom. Take us through the move, you know, back north at that point. Well, Jack Boyle asked me to go up to DC, so I, I went up there because Bill Kitchen or uh, there's a couple other guys that went up there, and, and then we we started the Capital Ballroom, which I did Bowie, I did Ozzy at, I did actually the Foo Fighters at. I do I at the Black Cat. We did one of the first Foo Fighters dates, I think, with Hovercraft, which was Beth, which was I think Ed's wife at the time. Like and, Mike Watt and shit, right? Yeah, with Mike yeah. Watt. Yeah, like, like that, that's Smallest, what it was. Smallest, coolest rooms. And Eddie was playing. I, 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 I did Luscious Jackson. I know no, none of these kids understand. What Beasties like, days. Beasties, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I worked lights there. Like, I mean, we did everything. So, it was a really exciting time for me. And I love DC. And I love uh, Ian McKay. And I'll, like, I, I love that vibe. So, Brian Baker is a friend of mine. It's just, just a great vibe. I'm a punk rock kid. I'm a heavy metal kid, to be honest with you. And so, you were a fan. And a hip-hop kid, too. It started because you were a fan then. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. I could, I could speak to anybody about Spoonie G and about Run DMC and all this stuff early on with hip hop when people were like, ooh, how the heck do you know that stuff? I dug the heck out of that stuff. I would listen to all that. So I was really into like kind of the off-center stuff. And to me, you know, we're all the same kind of like, they were like contemporaries actually. So two and a half years in DC, fighting with Seth day in and day out, finally enough of that shit. You get the call to come to Philly. Well, I left because um, Neil Jacobson at Polestar said that Bill Rogers was actually doing Tedeschi trucks with them at the Met. And I love Bill. Left with uh, Sid Payne and Bob Koch and New Park, whatever that was. And they're like, there's an opening here. We're opening this thing called the Electric Factory. Would you like to come up here? Or I think they may open it for a year. Would you like to come up here because they're leaving? And Neil kind of recruited me. And Electric Factory has, you know, been sold a bunch of times to SFX, to Clear Channel, then spun into Live Nation. So Larry's you, done well. Yeah, he's done well. 
But through all that, through all that time, through all those done well, yes. sales, you've been there, right? This has been He's done well financially, yes. This is Larry. <laughs> but at some point you got tapped to, to take And I don't that mean that derogatorily. Let me, let me make, make no mistake. When I say somebody's done well financially, that's part of it. I'm a passion play guy. So to be honest with you, money's great. Of course it is. I have six kids. I need money. <laughs> but I don't, I, I'm not, as Jerry Maguire would say, I'm not a paycheck player. I mean, I come from the audience, man. I mean, I really dig what I do. I throw the biggest parties, whether it be made in America or whatever it is. I throw big parties. And I love when people smile. The money comes after that. If you play for the money, man, like Jerry Maguire, you're a paycheck player. I'm not a paycheck player. Man, I can appreciate that. So Larry leaves and you get to step into that seat here as the president of the company. How did that come about? Well, you know, I'm the guy with the broom. They said, hey, man, now you're the president, I guess is what happened pretty much. And, you know, it's a, there's an incumbent. And, I, and Larry Maggot, I all due respect, and I owe him a lot of respect. You know, he was an incumbent. He started the business with a lot of promoters before, you know, when I was a fan. Whatever happened between him and Irving and Michael happened. And all of a sudden they're like, well, you're probably going to leave, right? I'm like, no. They're like, okay, now you're the president. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> so you're president of Live Nation Philly. <laughs> Just by, that, falling, that's pretty by, much falling, by falling into I, it. I'd like to make sure that's it was how... a little more sexier than that, but that's pretty much what happened. They're like, so, whoa, wait a minute. Everybody so, else is gone. You're still here. You're yeah. the guy. So all of a sudden you're, you're vaulted into this position where you're overseeing pretty much all of Pennsylvania except Pittsburgh, right? And AC as well, too, for Live Nation. A yeah, big job. A lot of a lot of shows. Yeah, six hundred and fifty shows a year. Six hundred and fifty shows a year. Every year that we do six hundred and fifty shows a year. Wow. Which is probably, I believe, the busiest business unit I think in the organization. And I have the small sliver too. I only have this much of a state and this much of a South Jersey. So a lot of you know a lot of other my contemporaries, my colleagues have states. I just have this. So I make as much as I can with this. And that's why we create the Met. And that's why we did Made in America. And that's why we're doing everything we can in AC with the AC Beach shows. And the great stuff we're doing with the Borgata and the Hard Rock. It's just it's this exciting time. Let's go back for a second. In your entire career, you've had two jobs. Cellar Door, which moved you around to DC and a couple other places. Then you came here and the company had been sold a couple times and merged and spun off. But you've been with the company for well, 11, 12 years now that Live Nation's been away from Clear Channel. And before that, you were there. When it was Electric Factory, you were there. You have been able to, through different administrations, different presidents, different overheads of both companies or whatever, you've only had two jobs in your entire career. In essence, I've had one job. Because if you look at it, Rick Franks, Wilson Howard, Ted Mankin, people that were at my colleagues at Cellar Door are still doing the same thing. Gary Meyer. I mean, there's a bunch of Great guys that are still doing what we do. So, yes. Because Cellar Door eventually got rolled yeah, up yeah, too. No, and you, no, I, that, you would have wound up in the same not place. To, not, not to like be totally like critical. Yes, I've had two jobs. Yes. But essentially, if you had not left Cellar Door, you'd still would have wound up at Live Nation through the roll-ups. Yeah, I'm loyal, as it turns out. <laughs> Dumbass. So... <laughs> So 650 shows, you're seeing a staff of 32 people. 
amongst all that is opening some amazing venues for Live Nation. And I'd be remiss because we're on Broad Street if we didn't talk about the reopening and the renovation of the Met just up the street from here, the beautiful 3,500 cap room that just opened up in December of last year and seems to have one of the hottest schedules in the city at this point. So take us through May 2018. Last year, you announced the reopening of this thing. And today you've announced that boxing is going to be returning to the Met. So it's got to be a, a cool thing for you to see this thing from you know renovation to, to opening at this point. It's the most exciting thing I've ever done, actually. Fillmore, we opened up three years ago. It was super exciting, too. I mean, if you don't know Philadelphia, we used to be called Philadelphia, by the way. Nobody would come downtown. Everybody would like to go out to the suburbs. Now, all of a sudden, everybody wants to come into the city because we're hot. We're super hot. We're playing a hot hand right now. So we played into it very much so and opened the Fillmore and opened the Met. So it's a very exciting time. It's painstaking when you sit there and take a a venue that hasn't had any event really except for church. And thank you, Reverend Hatcher, for 42 years. I was supposed to see uh, The Wrecking Ball a couple of times. And if you see 12 Monkeys, the movie, that's the venue that you see Bruce Willis getting his, into a fight with. I mean, it was a ruin. So four years ago when I saw that, I had to see through that. Uh, but six years ago when I saw The Bomb Factory, Acme Bomb Factory, that is now the film where I had to see through that. So with that comes a lot of challenges, but I always believed in Philadelphia, and I'm super psyched that I'm able to be part of it. And now all of a sudden, I look like a genius, but the fact of the matter is <laughs> I could have got crushed if it didn't work out. So it worked out pretty good so far. Go back to the nobody wanted to come downtown. So when did the revitalization of people coming back into the city happen? How, obviously, it wasn't overnight. How long was that transition and when did it start? Well, I credit Stephen Starr, who used to be a promoter as well. Uh, when he, the restaurant tour? Yeah, yeah. But, but he used to be a promoter, too. I don't oh. know if you know that. He I did Madonna, that, no. he did Wham! This is prior to me. Otherwise, he would never have gotten those shows. But um, <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Stephen Starr. Love him. Make sure I can get a reservation when I need to at Budokan. But, <laughs> but so he became a restaurateur. So he did the Continental. And all of a sudden, it became a thing. All of a sudden, the city became hot. Because it's always like, how do we get out of Philadelphia? And all of a sudden, now, Philadelphia is probably the easiest manageable city ever. There's no boroughs. There's no sections. There's, a, there's little North Broad, you know, whatever. But it's really easy to get around. Really, it's easy to get around. All of a sudden, you know... I have six kids, so my oldest lives in Fishtown, which Fishtown 10 years ago or 12 years ago, nobody would go to Fishtown or KA. But now all of a sudden it's a hip place. So everything becomes our own Brooklyn. I hate to take and say that, but it's kind of that vibe. Like Philly's so hot, it's the best city ever. And I mean that sincerely. We have the best musicians ever. And I'm I'm so excited that every couple of years I challenge myself to make sure that I open something new to make sure that I give a different experience to everybody. And I have. Actually I have. So I'm, I'm very appreciative that the city embraces it, and somehow I have dumb luck. Can we talk about you becoming a boxing promoter? Like, you're bringing boxing back to the Met. Boxing back to broad. So the Blue Horizon, for anybody who is uh, tenured here, big up for the Blue Horizon. <laughs> 
was a smoker's like place where you saw nasty boxing on Broad Street. The way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be. And apparently we also were fashioned after a uh, character called Rocky, so I'm understanding. So boxing is really <laughs> big here. So my intention was always when we did the Met was that we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars literally to make sure that the floor was flat so we could do a boxing ring on the floor. Oh, it's not gonna be on the stage. It's gonna be on. No, the floor. it's on the floor. So a lot of, lot of, like it, they're like, oh, we can just put it on the stage. Well, that seems like a performance. Like I want to see the footwork. I want to make sure you feel the round. You want to be in it, and that's what the Mets going to be. So February twenty third, we're gonna have our first boxing match with a bunch of undefeated kids. It's gonna be hot. We're gonna do it absolutely every other month or whatever, whatever makes sense. And I'm excited because boxing is such an integral part of Philadelphia and woven into the fabric. Joe Frazier, Michael Grant, Danny Garcia, the list goes on and on and on of the great boxers that are from here. And obviously made a fictional character that we run up the stairs with or whatever the case is. But the point is, that's what it is. Philadelphia has grit. We're ready to fight if we need to. Love uh, it. I, I can't help but uh, notice that you're wearing a uh, Live Nation jacket and a Watch the Throne European tour leg there too, which is probably a, a good segue to talk about your very now long-standing relationship with Kanye West and Jay-Z and the Made in America Festival. So how did Kanye and Jay-Z first come into your life? So when I started doing touring, um, a guy named Peso Durrani used to do both of those uh, clients that we had, left to go work with Beyonce and the management company there. And Michael said, okay, great. You know, G. Roberson, you're going to do Kanye. Great. You know, Sean G., you're going to do Kanye. Great. So I started to build a Kanye tour. And then I also knew John Manili and Desiree Perez. And Desiree Perez is one of the smartest people in the business. So I, I, we, Desiree had Rock Nation, right? Yeah, yes, Rock Nation. Yeah. So prior to what was Rock Nation, so and I've, I've known Jay since reasonable doubt. I've known Jay for a long time. So we started to put together this tour. I was like, wait a minute, maybe it's two Titans. You now they had this record and I listened to the record. Like, why don't we tour on this? And this is during the basketball lockout. So we started adding dates. Next thing you know, it's so hot. We just keep adding dates, keep adding dates. And I will contest anybody, although I'm sure I'll get a bunch of hassle on this. And thank you, Travi. Astroworld is awesome. Drake, my goodness, what amazing production. But early on, Watch the Throne was the best production of any hip-hop tour that ever played. And it was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm so, so blessed that I was allowed to do with Omar and everybody else that was involved. It was the best tour. And we were selling the heck out of tickets. And there should be talked about, because now hip-hop tours roll out like rock tours constantly, 10 semis, big shows, roll in, roll out, like any other Metallica show or Coldplay on the road. It's not a big deal, but it wasn't that way 15 and 20 years ago. I mean, besides Diddy doing it every once in a while with the family, and besides Bill Selva taking up and smokes out with Dre and Snoop, nobody had really figured out how to keep these guys on the road correctly. It would usually just be fly-ins. And yeah. you'd have to build a radio show. So it, was usually, hip -hop. it was usually banquet tables and a skirt and two tour tables and people like wave your hands in the air. And all of a sudden, now we're producing an amazing show. And I look down 2012, it makes me feel old. But, but, but Watch the Throne, I think, was the pinnacle of taking it from that into actually a production level that was amazing. And through that production rehearsals that we did in Birmingham, 
which were painstaking at times. It's a, it was a very special show. And let me tell you, you had two guys at the top of the game. You got Kanye and you got Jay-Z. And they all did the hits. And they did Watch the Throne, which to me, Watch the Throne is one of the best records ever made, in my opinion. It's a hip-hop. I mean, it's just it's so good. It's so good. It's like Derek and the Dominoes for rock and roll to me. It's like it's such a good record. It really played well. And they got to do Watch the Throne and then every one of their obviously amazing hits and and it became a thing that didn't even do encores but decided to do Paris about one time two times five times ten times eleven times I think when we got to Paris the birthday after like nine or ten times doing Paris Paris was was actually the the encore and I remember talking to Jay afterwards like how many times do you think Kanye's gonna want to do this for I'm like I don't know, but I think when we get to Paris, it's going to be a lot of time. It became a contest for the cities. How many times can we get them to do Paris? And I hope anybody knows us because that was the encore. Yeah. Back we wouldn't to back do it yet. Yeah, would to keep back on back playing Paris yeah. Yeah. until Kanye finally decided maybe five or six times was enough. <laughs> but it became a thing because the city was like, hey, if we only get it for two or three times, obviously we're not that hype. Like, we got to make sure we get it five times, six times. And I watched this, and it was organically cool, and it was the most awesome thing I've ever done. You've booked the East Coast for years, not just this market, but several, and you grew up booking all around the country. But routing a tour and promoting all over the country, let alone all over the world, that's a whole different set of skills. What kind of stepping up did that have to do for you? That seemed like a lot of extra work. Well, prior to that, you know, Michael was like, hey, listen, we're going to do this with Rapino. Watch. Yeah, Rapino, one of Jay's very good friends, one of the best business partners we could ever have. It was like, listen, we're going to watch the throne. Cool. Omar, who is basically one of the big guys in touring right now, was a junior guy at the time. I was like, he's, he's good. Let's go. He's my partner. Let's go. Let's go. So as we did this, somewhere when we went to go on sale... And there's a lot of other things that went around with it. I turned to Arthur Fogel, and people that don't know Arthur Fogel, but Arthur Fogel is Arthur Fogel. So. If you don't Watch. know him, there's a movie called Who the Fuck is Arthur Fogel <laughs> on Amazon. It's fucking awesome. It's great. So Arthur Fogel does U2, Madonna, Bruno. I mean, I'm, I'm, I turned, I said, I said to Arthur, I said, listen, I've just been a local promoter. Can you give me any insight of what happens when I be a national and world global tour promoter? He goes... Just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Thanks, boss. <laughs> I was like, okay. And as it turns out, he was right. Just hit the ball, man. You know what I mean? It's the same ball you hit when you're in Little League. It's the same ball when you hit in the big leagues. It's the same baseball. It's the same football. It's the same soccer ball. It's the same puck. As long as you know that you have confidence, that you have that muscle memory, and that you've done the right training and stuff like that, there's no difference. You just have to make sure that you have the confidence. It's not even cockiness. It's confidence to understand it's the same thing. When you bring that integrity into anything, that really is what matters. We talk about year seven. How did Made in America come to be and now you're in year seven? That came out of uh, the relationship with Desiree Prez and Rock Nation and Jay. They had gotten approached by Steve Stout and Budweiser. Let's do a festival. Of course, greedily, I said, let's do it in Philadelphia. <laughs> and of course, Jay was like, you know, I'm from Marcy Project. I'm like, yes, Jay, I know you're from Marcy, Marcy Project, of course. But I'm like, Philadelphia made America, birthplace of America. So I was like, okay, here we go. What a great place to do. The Rocky Steps, that's kind of like your story. Like this is this plays into it. This is great. So I went to Mayor Nutter at the time, and within two months, we're on sale with the festival. 
crazy as it seems. We've been producing on the parkway, 4th of July for many years. So I understood that. I thought that was a great place to do. I always wanted to think how we could close it off because I think that's the parkway in Philadelphia to me is the heartbeat of the city, the epicenter. Let's talk uh, about that space. I mean, talk about what you're looking at, what the stage on the parkway looked like in Made in America. Well, when we did Live 8 there, and we also did Elton John when he, for 4th of July. And the Pope, right? Yeah, and the Pope. Yes, we did the Pope. It's just... So that's what you think about when touring. The yeah. space has handled the Pope and Elton John. It's good. <laughs> yes, we produce the Pope, too. That's what Jay-Z I, wants to hear. Can the Pope play here? All right, I'm in. Well, I, you know, I, it's funny. So we did the Pope. We produced the Pope with Scott Merck and ECM in the city. And Jim Gaffigan was there, which was weird. <laughs> so Jim goes, and I'll do my best. Jim Gaffigan, he's like, Gordon. What are you doing here? Of course, it's Philadelphia. You produce everything here. And that was Gaffigan. I'm like, why are you here? So you anyway, do a good Gaffigan. Long story short, with Made in America. So we said, let's go. Let's do this. It was a fast track with the opportunity that Budweiser gave us with the support of the sponsorship. Jay doing a legacy item, which is Made in America. And, you know, Jay's the best. and can speak to artists better than I can. And we just did it. And at the last minute, I pulled in my friend's Pearl Jam to be on this second date as kind of like, hey, this will absolutely fortify the fact that we're going to have a lot of people here. We got Jam one day. We got Pearl Jam. So probably is the biggest festival that's ever happened that at the first year lost no money, which is incredible. And you hear the, the horror stories of millions of dollars, the first festival, but I'm such a cheap bastard that I didn't want to lose any money. So I just called in money and that we could make some money with. But you had to be surprised about that. You had to be planning and taking a loss that first year. Yes, I was. But I also understood that, yes, I'm not going to lie. Yes, most, I mean, you know, Paul Tillette and God bless Rick that lost millions of dollars. Most do. But we, I think we lost $112,000 the first year. That's, That's insane. It is insane. It's insane. When I tell a lot of people, they're like, how'd you do that? I said, because I hate losing money. That's how I did. <laughs> but it, you know I what? imagine it, the rest of those festival promoters weren't yeah. enjoying losing yeah, money. Yeah, but you know what? The greatest thing was, so after Pearl Jam plays and they played 99 Problems with Jay, like, I mean, I'm Pearl Jam's really close to my heart for many different reasons. And afterwards, Ed's, I said, I was talking to Ed and like, so what, what are we going to do? He's like, because Bruce was playing on, on Monday at the baseball park. He said, let's go see Bruce Monday. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm so freaking tired, man. OK, <laughs> but like, absolutely. And he's like, you know what, Jeff, this is one of the best things I've ever done. We played in front of so many diverse fans that this is really rewarding. So was, with that became the closing of the spectrum for four nights also became Ironically, when they played the last time here, the band was like, listen, Bruce has got these uh, banners and Elton's got these banners. I've said, no, I'm going to get you a banner, of course, because I never say He's no. Like the, the sold out thing. <laughs> and, the and, Raptors, and all right? of a sudden, I'm, and I'm going and I called Don Muller and I called him I'm like, you know, it's only 10. I'm like, there's more area plays, but it's only 10. And they're like, perfect. Get the banner done. <laughs> so they hang the banner. And as they're going on, Ed's like, Thanks for helping me write the, write the set list. So what do they do? They play 10 in its entirety, <laughs> which is a big record for Pearl Jam for the kids who don't know who Pearl Jam is. <laughs> but, but so they play the entire record. So to me, those are special moments to me, obviously. And I remember also Drake opened up for Pearl Jam on Made in America. And Drake, before he was totally Drake, um, was like, guys, stick around for the Pearl Jam. So I had two 
young African-American girls come to be, you know, like, sir, which makes me feel really good, which means I'm old because I have a pass on. Like, sir, should we stay around and watch the Pearl Jam? <laughs> I, and, I, and, and I said, girls, we're not charging any more if you do. Why not? Well, Drake says we should. I said, well, then listen to Drake. <laughs> and, and as it started to sprinkle and rain, I watched those girls probably 20 feet back from the stage rocking out. That's 2012. We're going to fast forward into the seventh year in the last summer. You know, you've been running Made in America at the parkway right at the steps where Rocky ran up here. And now you have to have a conversation with the mayor who, Mayor Keeney now, Kenny, wants to move that venue site. So talk us through or we'll give you a chance to talk about whatever you'd like to about that particular situation and what that means for Made in America. I'm super excited we're still on the parkway. <laughs> I'm not dodging. I'm just dodging at this point. <laughs> All right. Listen, Jim Kinney, Mayor Jim Kinney's a great guy, and there's always pressures from different situations, and I was just very pragmatic. And as it turns out, it's the heartbeat of the city, and I'm very blessed that we're doing the festival there. And I'm not being contrite about it because I love this city more than anything else. And there's different opinions of what art is. And that's if you read my comments was, is like, listen, I love the art museum. I love the Rodin Museum, but for these kids, this is art. We present art, so don't discount that, even though you don't understand what Uzi means or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's all art. It's all art. Don't question art. You might look at a Warhol and go, what's that, man? But you know what? It's art. So I appreciate art. I don't have to understand water lilies, but I like to look at it and say it's art. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I'm going with. That's a good answer. And art on the parkway works. (laughs) <laughs> and we're back, and we're there. Thank you, Mayor Jim Kenny. Yeah. All right. Let's and Michael Rubin. <laughs> I did my research, and I was told you've got a great Meeks Mills opening act at Powerhouse Story. Yeah. Well, so Meek, this is super ironic too. Early on, Meek, who is always a beast, I love him. So early on, Powerhouse, which is a, I think we're twenty-five or twenty-seven years into it, which is our WSL hip hop show. Done everything. Cameron, Beanie Siegel, Buster Rhymes, Uzi, Nev, uh, Juice World. Like, you know, Jay, Jay played it for three years. Like, it's like one of those things. It's like a rite of passage. It's a thing. So I was made sure that I got Meek as an opening act. He was the first on as an opening act. Because I was like, listen, this is going to be it. He's like, can you sure you can do it? I'm like, yeah which I just did with another kid named Zayosa, who's a great rapper too. So my point is this, that vehicle has been such a great vehicle for Philadelphia to actually highlight acts like that, like Uzi's mind as well. And the ironic thing is we had an argument backstage about who's better, Lil Wayne or Jay? And this was years ago. Of course, me being the Jay, and I love Wayne, don't get me wrong. But he's like, Wayne means more to me. Yeah, and guess who manages Meek Mill? <laughs> Rock Nation. So, <laughs> so uh, you meet Dave Grohl in your Celador days in D.C., and lo and behold, becomes Dave Grohl the Foo Fighters, and you've definitely had a chance to work with him professionally here in Philadelphia. You got any good Foo stories for us? David's one of my favorite people, period. I mean, and most everybody in the industry says the same thing. He's just a like-minded guy for me because we always understood where we liked the rock and roll. We we're both Sabbath and Zeppelin fans, but I was just discussing this earlier a couple of days ago. First time I heard Ramstein was Kroll turned me on to it. 
and and Grohl to me is is such a super talented, energetic guy that really exudes why I love to do what I do. And Jay's the same way. These are guys that when they they put it all on the field, they really do. When they go out there, they do what they do. There's nothing better to watch pros do what they do. And to me, a guy like Jay-Z or Grohl are the guys that just go, man, they just, they own it. And I respect the hell out of all of them. Before we open it up for questions, I want to talk about the stadium shows. There seems to be more and more every year. But in particular, Billy Joel has played this market six years in a row now. That's incredible. Like he picks different markets every year, but he plays here every year for you and he just sells it. Yeah, well, Billy, to me, again, if you listen to music, is really a part of the fabric uh, with WMMR. You know, Rich will tell you about the stuff at the point and Jesse was up with stuff at the point back in the day. Billy, Billy and Bruce are two of the acts that work from here, but basically should be or could be because of the support of WMMR. And you know what? Anytime you walk into a shore bar and hear, hear everybody sing piano, man, you know that it's really clicking. So it's exciting to have the sixth year happening at the, at the stadium and we'll sell it another one. You know what? As long as he keeps selling tickets and he wants to come and I love Billy and his crew, we'll keep doing it. How many stadium shows are you doing a year? I think he does about eight to 12 probably. So that, that's just greatly increased over the years. Over yeah, the yeah, yeah, years. yeah, yeah. I think, I think, you know, listen, his songbook is amazing. And I don't remember it was, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think there was a few years back, he's like, why should I write new music when everybody wants to hear the stuff that I already wrote? <laughs> and that's true, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what Billy Joel is. And he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful human being. I'll tell you a story about Billy real quick. So we're ready to take the proverbial or the usual industry pick with Billy, you know? And I said, Billy, there's a kid out there that's struggling with leukemia, and I'd prefer that possibly he'd take the picture because not that I wouldn't like to take a picture with you again, but he's like, get him. So I go get him the golf cart, come back. Billy does not only take the picture with him, drives him around the entire time. Now, the good news, that kid overcame leukemia, but he could not be any more smiling for whatever pain he was going through. And that, to me, is the beauty of music and the beauty of Billy Joel. At that moment, he rose him up to that. And he looked at me and said, Jeff, you're a mensch. You did the right thing. Bring in the Yiddish. Billy Yiddish. Joel calling you a minch. I don't know a better way to wrap it up other than to say that uh, is an incredible story and being called a minch by Billy Joel. I mean, come on. It's high praise. It's high praise. So let's go ahead and open it up for questions. If you Down have here. any questions, please say your name and where you go to school or where you work, whatever. So, you know, the internet can stalk you. There has to be some questions out there for, right. come on, Jeff Gordon, everybody. We got one here. Okay, so I'm Sydney Taylor. I'm currently a music business student at the University of the Arts, and I actually work in guest services at the Fillmore. God bless you. <laughs> um, so as we heard, you've booked so many bands, so many of my favorite bands you talked about. And of course, you started out being in the audience. So you yourself started out being a fan. Is there one? I still am a fan, by the way. And yeah, you're no, I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, I, I don't want to clarify that because the other night went to Casey Musgrave at, at the Fillmore, and I love her. I, I don't even want to say when I was watching this show. I mean, I love when I watch an artist like that. And I think Casey, she likes to be called Spacey Casey, but I love Casey. <laughs> she She's unbelievable. So I, 
Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I, I still am a fan. I, you'll see me out there watching shows, so sorry, go ahead. You know, you've booked so many bands and artists. Is there one band or artist that, you know, you either been a fan of for a very long time or become a fan of that you, you know, can't believe that you actually got to work with them, got to book them, got to... David Bowie. David Bowie. Too. <laughs> when, I, when I got to book David Bowie, to me, David Bowie, no disrespect to anybody else I've talked about, and I don't mean any disrespect, David Bowie is my favorite artist of all time. I think he's truly an artist. He was a musical artist, but he's an artist. He transcends. He was a character. Bowie, you know, we, we've lost a lot of people, obviously, but when Bowie passed, it really hurt me bad because I think Bowie really encapsulated everything that anybody that's doing music really is. And I have this conversation with Uzi, who I love. And I think Uzi has a lot of Bowie in too, as a hip hop artist. But Bowie is my, my favorite. We go on the inverse of that. What's the one artist that's eluded you that you haven't gotten to promote it that you'd like to or wish you had? None. Oh, you've got them all. Yeah. Actually, now you see that couple. Well, I mean, I guess I say Jimi Hendrix, but that's so like, yeah. But I've been lucky. I mean, I remember. He might be on a You know, I remember getting a knock on the door, you know, knock on the door. Listen, Stephen Tyler wants to say hi because you're the promoter. I'm like, Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith. I might say to him. You know, <laughs> I was like, God, hey, you know. So, no, and Bowie was such a gentleman. I don't mean to be so obsessive about Bowie, or maybe I do mean he was such a great artist and such a great guy that I think really, and I, I, I always think that Uzi has a lot of Prince and Bowie in him. That's why I think Uzi is a very special rapper, I guess you call him now, but I think he's more of an artist. I'm a big fan of Philly artists. So I'm not here to super push Uzi, but I, I mean, I love him. I think he is that guy. I think he's that guy that's artistic. Just like I thought Manson was. Listen, when I was in Florida, Manson, the spooky kids, I used to do them in a 200 capacity venue. And Brian, to this day, Brian, Maryland, to this day, every time I see him, I was like, Gordon, he remembers, <laughs> he remembers that, like, I did those dates early on. So to me, Manson was also that kind of art. I, I like when people just don't sing or rap, when they actually bring a show, when you're a performer, when you entertain. It doesn't matter whether I get it. it. doesn't mean I love Shania Twain, but she brings a show. I like people that bring a show. You know what I mean? Cher brings a show. That's what I like. Anybody else? Up front. My name is Devontae Cherry. I'm a musician, and I'm the son of a guy who's in the business side of the music industry. He wanted me to tell you hi. He's like your biggest fan. Posters on the wall and everything. Who's your dad? His name is Sabir Talib. He was a Freeways Road Manager, being sure. Singles Road Manager. He wanted me to ask, does an artist have to hit a certain plateau before Live Nation considers them for touring and shows and things like that? Like, what's the cap where they come across your desk? Sell tickets, I guess. Maybe it's right. <laughs> no, I mean, I just told you about a kid named Meek Mill that really wasn't worth any tickets, but caught my attention because he was so talented and, and actually persistent. But you have to have both, you know, at a certain point. I think a lot of people here that are in the promotions business will say it's great when you're persistent it's great when you have talent but it's also great when you put both of those together and that's really what it's all about we put on acts all the time that are not worth tickets thinking that you know obviously mount joy which is a band from here who i love that probably with tickets but when asked if we get we could have an oprah on weezer at the met 
Mountjoy was an obvious choice, and I loved them. And Dr. Dog, who slipped the tape into Jim James' pocket with my morning jacket, you know, like, you know, fathead, I can go down the list of acts that have always been supportive. So the answer is no, I don't think there's an exact equation. It's just the amount of persistence and actually the ability to work. There's so, a whole club and theater division at Live Nation that has the ballroom chains, the Fillmore's and the House of Blueses and what have you, where they're really dedicated in breaking acts. So maybe there's three or four up and coming acts they try to put together that couldn't headline venues that size yet, but they're out there doing it. There's support scenarios where maybe you get lucky enough to be the first of three on a bigger package. Luke actually works with a couple of younger acts that are out there breaking the clubs that like very early on, if they're, you see it, you'll even go out there and lose money to develop them as a company. But financially, I think Live Nation is probably one of the better companies at realizing if there's something there, we'll make the investment. Yeah. And also, I think, I think it's also like we'll get proper dark open up for uh, David Byrne. It's a local act here. I got suggested by somebody. And to me, if the band sounds good, we'll give it a break and we'll see what, what's happening. We don't always get those opportunities, but I try to do it the best I can. Anybody else in the back? How you doing? My name is William Schmidt. I'm the front man for an art rock band called Oblivion Her Majesty. I'm here with my manager, Shane. So I do this to like most industry professionals. Wait, 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 what's hard rock? What, tell me art, what hard art rock, rock is. I'm sorry, art rock. Art rock. So it's like a hybrid of like progressive metal, hard rock, and then I like synth pop influences. Not really hip hop, but like I guess to say more pop. Sounds you like, like it sounds, like, in sounds like I'm very inspired by Muse. Okay. Um, okay, good. Okay, cool. I love them. Pink Floyd, like way back, like, we like the Floyd, progressive side. Tame Impala. They like Tame Impala at all? I respect, I don't listen to them a lot, but I very much respect <laughs> their artistry. No, no. <laughs> They have very different beliefs than us. Herbie's like, screw this guy. No, but um, <laughs> so, and I, again, I do this to almost anybody I meet who's in the industry because I don't, couldn't, couldn't really think of a question, but if there's even like three words that you can say to anybody who's really trying to step into the industry, anything from your previous experience that like comes to mind that you would say to someone like, hey, like either do this, don't do that, get yourself into this, like do you have any... Just general rule of thumb that you wish you'd do in the beginning. It's going to sound stock, but it's lead with integrity. That's it. Lead with integrity. Because the people, the acts that have made an impression for me to try and give a chance, I could always read where they really just didn't think that was owed to them. And there's a bunch of them. The list goes on and on and on. The ones that I've been lucky enough to help build, especially the Philly acts that I've mentioned, lead with integrity. Always like, Always think about like value what the person is doing that you want them to do and then return that value with your efforts. That's really it. Because you know what? Mahavishnu Orchestra is amazing, but they were never a stadium act. Beyonce is because Beyonce is an amazing artist. So but my point is just make sure you deliver. If you deliver, partner with a promoter that will deliver for you. That's really it. It sounds kind of stock, but it's true. The other side of that is we all talk and you fuck one of us. Everyone will know. And it doesn't matter if there are competitors or not. You fuck Live Nation, AEG will know you fucked us. Everyone will know immediately because everybody talks about whatever somebody did to fuck you over. Like, it travels quick. You fuck two people over, it's become history. Everybody Show knows up that the you're work. that guy. So Show just up live work. up to your word and, like, make sure that anything you say you can do, don't say you can sell 400 tickets and then turns out you're only worth 50 people. Like, just tell the truth. That way, like, you deliver. They'll book you again. Like, oh, that guy actually did what he said he was going to do. He brought 50 fucking people, but they all showed up. Yep. Second row. 
I'm Jack. I work as a runner at a bunch of venues in New Jersey. I started out at the Stone Pony. I know you started out as a runner, one of your first jobs. I was kind of curious what that transition was like for you from running to booking and then what advice you might have for someone trying to make the same transition. Similar answer. Be persistent, show up. The reason I was a runner or did whatever I needed to do is because I want to just be in the business. So you're on the right track. I mean, that's it. I'm 52 years old, so I'm dating myself here. But when anybody would say, hey, listen, I need this, I would say, absolutely. Then I'd go to the phone book. Now, you guys don't have to. You can Google it. But I'd go to the phone book and figure out where I needed to go. Like, He's the best runner. Maybe he should do this. That's really it. I mean, it really is a business of that. And I can tell you how many, Jared Paul, who was my intern in D.C., who now manages new kids and does Dancing with the Stars and stuff like that. Dave Klein, who's at UTA, Jeremy Koplick, uh, Steve Gaber, Andy Levitt, who's running comedy with Jeff Wills. These are all people that worked with us. Like These are all people that were our interns or started work with us. So to us, it really is, once you get into the family, we don't have time to search out of it. So just keep going, keep working hard. Before you know it, you'll be running a venue. Before you know it, your production assistant. Before you know your production manager. Before you know it, it's a career because you know what? My job is to make sure I build as many jobs as possible. And I build as many venues as possible. I build as many jobs as possible. And that's my job. I got this. Just come on aboard. Awesome. Thanks. How you doing? Hey, my name's Aram. I'm a music business student over at Drexel University. So as we all know, the music industry is one that is always rapidly changing. And throughout that, the lab music industry has always been a bright spot. And so with that in mind, I'm wondering how you personally see the music industry in, say, 20 years, and most specifically the lab Huge music industry. Huge growth opportunity. Otherwise, would not sit there and build venues or invest like I do. There's other people that stop the growth. And somebody said to me a long time ago, when you're green, you grow, and you're ripe, you rot. So I keep being green. I wake up every day trying to figure it out. Otherwise, why would I build the Met? Like, why would I do the film where I just wait and cherry pick for Camden and everything else? To me, I love the build. That's why if you look at the vertical we have right now, we go to the foundry, we go to the TLA, we go to the Fillmore, we go to the Met, and we go to the arena. That's the vertical that, that we've built. And then all the other great casino properties and everything else around here, like that's aggressive as we want to be because we want options. Then we have the festivals we do because I want to make sure that I provide options for agents and managers and acts that change up and challenge it and put, you know, the roots picnic, stuff like that. That's what I want to do. So to answer your question, I'm going to keep building venues as long as acts keep on Wanted to play, so that's what I'm going to do. Let me say this about the live business, which you guys deal in a lot, and I do as well as in management, but it's the most defensible part about that is that you can't replicate that. There's just nothing like a live show. Thank God, or we'd be fucked. <laughs> so there's always going to be that, that aspect. It's true because you know what? It's a tribal experience where you go and everybody's like-minded. There's a, there was a time that we all freaked out. With, oh, my God, HD freaking movies. They're going to have you too. And it's going to be just as good because you can smoke a joint in the movie theater. And it'll be like you're at a U2 concert. You're not like you're at a U2 concert. Because you know what? When you go to a show, it's one of the only places that you can go to. Actually, that's not true. There's sports too. But there's one of the only places that when you go, you don't have to tell everybody why you like The Revivalist because you're there because you all like The Revivalist. And you all smile when you look at each other because you all get it. You all get it. 
You're all part of that psychographic that goes, God damn right, we're having a party, and thank goodness these are our guys. And that's the beauty of live music. There's nothing better than live a concert. And I say this to my, some of my hockey buddies that play for the Flyers or you know some of the guys that play for the Eagles. I say, we never lose. We always win in concerts. We <laughs> always win. Whether it be Reeve McIntyre, Jay-Z, it doesn't matter. We all win because we're all there to see the same thing. We get it. Let me, let me ask you both one question here, too, to, to that end, because, yes, there's something defensible about not replicating live, but what do you think about the price of a live ticket in the past 10 years? And to your point, in 2009, there was a dip in the live business. It's not always going up. It's not always a bright spot. It's been a great bright spot for a long time, but it's not always been that. And since 2009, ticket prices, grosses have been on the rise like crazy, and you guys are doing some of the biggest shows in the world. So how do you feel about the price of music right now? I'll give that to you, Dan. Shit. I'll start, <laughs> and then you can clean it up. Fuck. 2009, the economy fell apart, so of course we're going to see a dip, sure. but in general... Acts are touring like they've never toured before. Traffic is insane. When we check holds, you're 9, 10, 12 deep. And it's that question of who's playing where and what's happening. And are we really going to see three bands of the exact same genre play the same market on the same night? Are they really not going to play together? I mean, we have these conversations constantly with the same agent challenging their own holds. It's I the once say, thing. I once I heard party with my seven and eight-year-old a couple of weeks ago at Broadway. I paid $350 a ticket to go see Harry Potter. <laughs> so when someone tells me that $150 is too much to see Steely Dan, you're wrong. Because oh. you know what? Nothing gets Harry Potter, but I got to tell you, Steely Dan is worth $150 if Harry Potter is worth $250 or $300. So I'm not discounting the fact that the ticket prices are growing. But to be honest with you, we also have 49.50s up here if you don't want that. It's up to you. Like, honestly, there's a price point that I, I try to make sure, and John will attest to this, John Hampton, who's right over there, one of my colleagues, is that I always try to make sure there's a point of entry that you're allowed to, to get into the show. It might be 200 tickets at 20 bucks, but I want to make sure that's available. It's a function of guarantees and expenses, okay? It is. We'd love to give them all away. That ain't going to happen anymore, okay? We have union deals. We have expenses. Those sound and lights are expensive. Rolling in with what looks like a video with 22 trucks nowadays, every show, it's expensive. So we're trying to produce the best. I mean, God damn, Travi had a freaking roller coaster, man. Like, that ain't <laughs> cheap to set up. You know what I mean? So if you want that experience, yes, that's the experience they want. Kanye was floating over people's heads. Yeah. Drake had a basketball court. Like, if you want that experience, it's going to cost some dough. But I tell you what, when you walk away, I'll challenge you that you didn't have the best time. Well, not only that, we're finding that the public is going to pay them that on the secondary anyway for the best seats. So we're trying to keep that money in the artist's pocket instead of just letting it go to somebody that's buying futures and buying the ticket. So that's the fight that we have is trying not to have the artist lose all of that money that's just going to go into somebody's pocket anyway. There's nothing, secondary. there's nothing worse when you sit there and go, oh, my God, I undervalued the ticket. Now, there's a bunch of artists that obviously want to be credible and make sure that they can be you know, that, that person. But at the end of the day, all it takes is one scalper to get 20 tickets next to their for $500. Uh, Dylan, our first night at the, at the Met, and I didn't even know this. And it's, I'll tell you this story. It's, it's funny. And it gives you that, that understanding. So our developer partner there, so Dylan tickets, we sell out first night of the Met. God bless. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Brian Greenman. Thank you, everybody. 
Jeff Kramer, um, we sell them all up. Actually, you know, take us on the, on the secondaries for $1,500. So what does my developer partner goes, why didn't you hold 500 of them and sell them for $1,500? <laughs> he had no idea why I was that stupid. <laughs> and I said, because my client would fire me and so would my company because I'd be scalping tickets. He thought as a real estate person, oh my God, square foot, are you crazy? And I said, they price it because they feel that's the right price. I try to fight against it with platinum and other aspects where I can sit there and combat that. But at the end of the day, that's not what they want to charge. So I don't know if I said that correctly, but that's what's happening. Yeah. And, I, and you know what? Yes. A bunch of people will sit there and there's, there's shows we don't even go on sale with. That all of a sudden, on on scalpers, yeah. yeah. Fish. We just announced fish. Best tickets for Camden, $600. Like, we haven't even sent the ticket out. Because they're just throwing the line in the water. You know what I mean? Like, what do they have to lose? Right. All they do is refund you if they can't. Yeah, it's a bottom feeder business. So, you know what? We're not opportunists. We're long-term play. We're wide view. And that's what that's what I want to do. And I'll make sure that we have absolutely a ticket price for everybody. And I'm very stringent about it. And John, I'll tell you that. Very stringent. I make sure I have a point of entry that's cheap enough somewhere. And whether it is, it's just to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to buy a ticket. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for an icon, Mr. Jeff Gordon. Thank you. Got you this Emporium hoodie as a gift for being with us today. Well, let me see that right there. That is sweet. Thank you so much. I really want to thank everybody that came out. I'm humbled by this experience. And I want to let you know that whatever mindset you guys are in, I was always in the same mindset. I came from a fan experience, a musician experience, and I'm really blessed to even be able to do what I do. And I thank you all very much for allowing me to do what I love the most, which is put on concerts. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Jason Kupperman from Paradigm, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Thank you, everybody. Thank you to the University of the Arts. Thank you to Eva. Thank you to Jesse Lundy, everybody that came out tonight. Thank you so much. Hope to see you at a show very soon. We've got some great guests coming up on our podcast. Absolutely. I'm wishing you sold out shows for the weeks to come. Cheers. Check you all. Mother. Hey, this is Gino Shelton, and I'm on Promoter 101. Fly, eagles, fly, on the road to victory. Ba -da -ba -ba.